The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are, uh, for this kind of tail end of the summer, we're in a sermon series called In Season. And uh, basically the premise of this is that I and some of the other pastors and leaders here at Love City Church, we're going to be preaching from verses that have been particularly impactful or meaningful, challenging or encouraging to us over this last year. In the book of Proverbs chapter 15, it says that a word in season, in due season is a blessing. There's this idea that uh, sometimes uh, the Lord there's, there's truths that are true all the time, and we cling to those, yes? But there are also sometimes when the Lord, uh, in, a, in a very merciful, gracious way, uh, brings things to us at just the right time. And so uh, we're hoping that these verses that have been encouraging, a blessing, challenging to us over the last year will also be for you. And so we're turning today to First John. We're going to be in uh, verses 7 through 21. And... This, it, it may seem like I sidestepped the assignment of the sermon series a little bit in preaching this, uh, because, many of you may know this, uh, these verses have been, perhaps, I can say this safely, they've been among the most formative for me as a follower of Jesus. And so this is not something that I have just recently discovered, it's something I've been thinking about and preaching about for many years, but there is a sense in which, over the last year, um, all the wildness that has been the last year, anybody else notice any wildness over the last year as a general rule? Yes? Okay, I see a few nodding heads. I know raising your hand is a little bit, uh, you might think I might call on you, and that's terrifying, so uh, don't do that. But a nod will work. So it, it has been wild, and, and you know these, these verses that we're going to go over today, for me, they, they are an anchor for my soul. It's a place where I go when it feels like the compass is spinning. I don't know which way is north. But in particularly over this last year, I have found myself multiple times in, in just trying to ingest all of the, the, the wildness, the craziness, the difficulty. Um, and, and that's, you know, at, at the individual relational level, right? With people I know, just difficult things going on in people's lives, but then scaling up from there to in our city, in our state, in our country, and then globally, there's been a lot of really hard things to process. And so I've found myself back in the, the truth and principles found in these verses to be able to, to anchor myself and to be able to figure out, all right, now what do I do now? What, how do I think? What do I focus on? And, and so um, not only has this for my entire life as a believer been incredibly meaningful, impactful, challenging for me, uh, but also particularly this last year. So I didn't really cheat. That was a long way to say. Uh, I'm not really cheating. This uh, is fresh for me as it always has been. Uh, and before I read this to you, so we're in First John. Uh, there's, <clears throat> there's, this is not recorded in Scripture, but uh, from historical sources outside of Scripture, it said that the Apostle John, right, and most of the apostles were martyred for the faith, they tried to kill John, they boiled him in oil, but he was a tough old bird, and that didn't kill him. And then they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, it's where he received the book of Revelation. 
But there's, within kind of the annals of church history, there's stories of John getting very, very old to the point where when it was time to gather as a church, the younger men would just pick him up and, and carry him in. And, and it got to the point where he couldn't even say a whole lot. And it's said that he would oftentimes, the, his whole sermon would be, dear ones, just love one another. That was, for the Apostle John, a summary. And uh, I, I can relate to that. I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily hoping that some of the kids in kids' church ever have to carry me in and out of here. But uh, if that's the case... Uh, hopefully I'll lose some weight before then for their sake, but also, um, if, if I was going to boil it down, if I could only had the strength to utter a few words to you, I would probably just copy off John. I think he was on to something. So let's read these verses that just kind of let you get a taste of where we're headed here. So I'm in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved... Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, if you've been here any amount of time, we've you know, we've stomped all through this in, over the years, but I, I want you to know that, uh, not that it's wrong to do this, but just as a general practice for me, the fact that I've preached from these verses, we preached through the whole book of First John at, at one time, and then, I, you know, there's been times I've been back here. I don't typically just go back and, and go grab a set of sermon notes from the last time I preached through this and preach it. I didn't even look at anything I've preached before when I came to this today. So I just want you to know, I, and again, I'm not disparaging anyone that does this, but this is not a microwaved, you know, uh, leftover, right? This is, I, I came back to the Lord in this time, at this point, after the experiences of this year, and I asked him to help me to feed the flock from these verses, okay? Amen. So and why am I saying that? I'm saying that because, look, man, if some of you, this may be your first week. You may not have any idea what I'm talking about, but 
you know, the name of this church is Love City Church. And these verses are part of the reason for that, right? Some people might think, well, what, why'd you name the church that? You think that's a cool name? I don't know if it is. Probably, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I, is it cool? I don't know. That probably depends on who hears it. You know, I know when we first had to try to get a web domain, it was, it was like a, a, a dating hookup site or whatever, right? So, you know, we had to run them off the internet um, by prayer because, you know, we didn't have any money to pay for anything. So, you know, uh, but that went away. And, uh, but here's, here's why. Here's, here's why the name of the church is Love City Church. Because in, in, in three words, it describes both who we are and what we do. When I say it's who we are, our goal is to be a, a representation, a little city within the big city, a, a little city of people motivated by love and the love of God particularly. That's, that's who we are. It's also what we do. Because we're here in the time and place where God has established for us to be, our goal is to love this place, to love the city. And... Uh, you may, you know, there's preachers like Spurgeon and, and there's, there's others, they'll, <clears throat> they've said things like, uh, they, they would try very hard to not repeat themselves often. And, and I have a great respect for Charles Spurgeon and many of the other preachers that I'm thinking of. But I think there are some things that bear repeating, that are worth repeating, that are worth being reminded of on a semi-consistent basis, because of their importance. Did you, there's some things that key, they, they, they get my ear when I read 1 John 4, 7 through 21. The one who does not love does not know God. Does that get your attention? That gets my attention. I, I, I'm instantly now thinking, what does that mean? Because I want to know God. And I'd like to think I do, but do I? Because apparently if I don't love, I don't know him. Because he is love, and in this set of 14 verses, that's said twice. That's a really big statement, isn't it? It's, it's worth thinking about. It's worth diving into. It's interesting that in verse 7, right off the bat, beloved, let us love one another. This, this Greek sentence, it's agapatoi, agapamen. When you, when you see John say beloved, if you've read, you know, Johannine literature, the, the books that John wrote, you can, it, it can start to be like, oh, okay, that's just the way he addresses the saints. He just says beloved. And, and, and yes, but it's interesting to understand that in this sense, and, and with that word structure put together, what's really being said is that those who are loved, beloved, those who are loved, let us love. And he reinforces this implication throughout this set of verses, Right? And it's very important, first of all, this speaks to, to in, in my view, this, why, does this, why am I saying this is worth repeating? Why, why would I not be concerned? If we came back to these verses, especially every year as a church, why, why would I not be worried that maybe we're overdoing it? Because some things do rise to the top in terms of supremacy and importance when it comes to what the scriptures lay out for us to think about, to care about, to live in light of. Some things do come to a place of higher prominence. And I'm going to make a defense for that. Why? Partially because I want you to care. You don't have to, these don't have to be your favorite verses. These don't have to be necessarily verses that you turn to as much as I do as an anchor for my soul. But I do, I want you convinced of the supremacy and the excellency, the importance of love to the follower of Jesus. I do want to convince you of that. And so I'm going to work hard to try to do it. All right? Those who are loved, 
let us love. That, what does that mean? That our ability to love at all, to understand what it is, and then to walk in it in any meaningful way, comes from the fact that we are loved by God. God is the source of love. He's the one that defines it. That leads us to verse 8 to think about this. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Notice, friends, words are important. Word order is important. Notice that this says, the one who does not love does not know God, for what? Why? That's a big statement. Hold on. There's this, there's this other thing that if I don't know it, if I'm not in it, I can't know God? It's a big deal. Why? Why is that true? Because God is love. Now, a lot of people know the Bible says that. But we oftentimes practically invert the order of the words and it matters incredibly. Because oftentimes what we end up living as is as if this says love is God, not God is love. And that's a crucial distinction. Why? Because if love is God, it puts us in the seat of the truth arbiter. It puts us in the seat of determining what love means. And what we end up doing then is what humans have always done. We end up fashioning a God ourselves. And we name it love. Our perception, our conception of what love is, we then project that. And where did that come from? Well, it could come from all different kinds of places. It could come from the way your family raised you. It could come from social, cultural cues. There's all kinds of ways you could come up with an idea. If I was to sit each one of you down, I'd honestly like to do this one day. If I could sit each one of you down and say, what is love? And then probe and prod and find out where did you come up with that definition? What's shaping the way you're even trying to process the question I just asked you? What is love? If we take our definition, if we take our conception and then say, okay, that's, all right, the Bible says God is love, so that's what God is. We've done it backwards. God is love. God is the one that defines love for us, not us defining love and then making our own God. Incredibly, incredibly important and tricky, isn't it, friends? It's not, most of you would not try to do that. Most of you not, would not intentionally say, I'm, I'm going to, just like, just like the Israelites at, at the base of Mount Sinai, I'm, I'm about to make a God for myself. Golden calf, Woo, right? None of us, well, most of us aren't out here <laughs> trying to make golden calves. That's not our intention going into it. But it's, there's, there's, it's, there's a deceptive, sneaky, prideful tendency that we have to end up doing that. And, and we could feel very justified in it by misunderstanding this, this very important order of words. God is love versus love is God. And I think it's also worth mentioning that the word, the word love is important from a scriptural perspective in this way. If, if, you look at, if you look at the Greek, this is the language that this was written in originally. The word here is agape. You probably heard that earlier when I explained that what that beloved, let us love, means, right? The, the root there is agape. And what's interesting is, if you go and you look at ancient literature, you will, you will struggle to find anywhere other than the scriptures the, the use of this Greek word. It's, it's almost, it, you almost can't find it anywhere else. And part of what that tells me is that, and, and the other thing you should know about that is that the Greeks, in my view, not that I'm an you know, expert in language, but I, I think I can say this without getting out of my depth. 
the Greeks were far better than we are at having terms for affections. Because we, in English, um, and I'm not sure it's always been this way, but it, I, I think it's almost undeniable that it's this way now, we are often sloppy with language. We kind of have junk drawer terms. It's almost a race to the bottom in terms of uh, exaggeration, right? This is so totally amazing. This is awesome, right? We, we go, we, we grab big words and apply it to things that it maybe don't deserve it. You understand what I'm saying? Um, awesome means, and look, I'm not trying to get on anybody. Have I, have I said a burrito was awesome before? Yes, absolutely. I've done that. Okay, so we're all in this, all right? So I'm not, I'm not yelling at anybody, but, I'm, I'm, but can we at least think about this together is what I'm asking. If awesome means it leaves me in awe. I mean, when, when was the last time you were really in awe of something? Really, like mouth open, I don't have words about this. Awe, right? Well, well God should definitely be that for us as we think about his greatness, as we think about his majesty, how magnificent he really is. Some of, some of the things God has made, yes, could leave us in awe, but, but ultimately because it's pointing back to him, yes. But my point is, <clears throat> sometimes we're sloppy with language and we need, in English, we need, we need some word that, that is, is agape. We need something to be able to say, just like the, the, the writers of the New Testament knew, like, the Greeks had a bunch of different words, right? For, for like the love between a husband and wife, you know, like the bedroom kind, that was eros, right? They had a word for that, like, like sexual love. They had phileo, which was like brotherly love, like the bros get together, right? Chest bump, we're bros, right? Philadelphia, what, what's that city's nickname? City of brotherly love, right? So that's where that comes from. It comes from the Greek. Phileo, brotherly love. You've got eros, you've got storge. That's, that's also, it's like long-term fidelity type of love, right? It's the kind of love that maybe in a, in a marriage as, as eros becomes less and less important with each decade, storge begins to take its place. It's, it's, this, it's this kind of commitment. It's a dutiful love, which is also beautiful in its own way, right? And so they had all these different terms. And I think that's helpful, really helpful, because there's different types of affections. But this word agape, the New Testament writers, they, 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 they knew they needed something, they needed some word, it, this, this, this love of God that we're, we're trying to get people to understand here, this, this, this love that, that God is, it's not eros, it's not phileo, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not storge, None of they, those all fall short, and it's not, it's not the right word. We need something to describe that this is different than all the rest. This is far more than even just a subsection of affection. This is something totally, completely different in its own category, and, 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 and so, you know, at the, at the risk of sounding like a legalistic neatnik, and I'm, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do, I, my children and my house, many of you have picked this up because it's a conviction that I've shared, we don't say I love pizza or I love lamp or I love, you know, whatever the thing is, right? We, we don't, we love, the word love, we need something in English, right? And I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I don't think it's really going to work for us to run around and say, I agape you. Like, I do agape you, but... I don't, that's a lot of syllables and we're lazy, right? So like we need a word. <laughs> and, and, and all throughout the scripture, uh, translating to English, agape is translated as love. And, and I, you know, I think to some degree, the people of God, we, we, we ought to wrestle for this word. I think may, maybe, maybe we have to distinguish that we're talking about the God type of love. We have to do something, but we have to have some way to, to distinguish 
what we're talking about here, this thing that God is, right? That we're being called to of the highest importance. And so I, I would contend that we need to be careful with the word love. I would also contend that uh, maybe we should get better at finding other words for other things because, man, God is love. The, the scripture writer here is, is okay with putting God putting an equal sign between God and this other word. That, that, now it's at the top of the mountain. Now, now I need to be careful. Now I need to think really hard about how I apply that and what I think it, it means. So agape is something different. And you, you maybe have not heard yet, well, you said you were, you were going to maybe try to convince us that this this is really important. And maybe you haven't heard that yet. Well, to me, it's, it, I read this, I see, I see the love of God. I see all that, all that goes around that in these 14 verses. I see a lot of that already in what we've read. But we can also take a quick journey over to the teachings of Jesus. Look at Mark 12, when a scribe stands up. And, and we, we have this incredible, I'm so glad this was recorded in scripture. I mean, what a moment when a scribe stands up, who knows what his motivation was, and says, hey, teacher, talking to Jesus, the master, the incarnate word of God, right? Some brave scribe says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And instead of Jesus saying something like most of us would expect, I don't know what you expect. What I expect Jesus to say is, well, any commandment of God is important. All the commands of God are important. And so there is not one that's greatest. If God commanded it, then it's, it sits on equal footing. I would expect something like that. And in one way, he really did, but, but that's not what he said. The Lord Jesus, when asked what was the greatest commandment, said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He put these two together, and we see that what is, why? Hold on, that sounds like two, does that sound like two commandments to some of you? It sounds like two commandments to me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Keep, keep that, so why, why when asked for one did he give two? We'll talk about that. Because it's really one. And it's really, hold on, let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead here. The problem, the problem with this having been worked so deep into my heart is, is A, I could go really long, I'm going to try not to, but B, um, I, I, you know, I, I jump ahead really, really quickly without intending to. But no, this, this is the right time to say this. When, when I said what I would expect Jesus to say is something like, well, all the commands of God are important. So all of them stand on equal footing. In saying love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself, he really did that because friends, if you go to, if you go to Romans 13, 8, Paul lays this out. Oh, no man, anything but to love him, right? Because if you love your neighbor, you have fulfilled the whole law. And if you start to really think about it, just, just run through the Ten Commandments, all right? If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself, let's think about the Ten Commandments. Is, is this one commandment that Jesus gives not all-encompassing of the rest, right? Have no other gods before you. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, am I going to have an idol? No. If I love my neighbor as myself, am I going to murder them? Probably not, <laughs> right? Am I going to lie to them? Am I going to envy what they have? Run it, run it down, friends. Do it. Run through the Ten Commandments in your mind. 
and then run it back through the grid of loving God and loving neighbor. And you'll find that actually what we do have is a summary of all of them. They do all stand on equal footing, but they are summarized. Funnel them all down, bring it all down to this, this sharp point. And I need that because I'm not that smart. Does that help you? It helps me. Because it's hard for me to keep track of all the things I need to think, and think about and keep track of. But this, that's part of why this has it's changed my life. Because it, it's some, it boils it all down for me. It's really... If I, whatever situation I'm walking into, whatever person I'm dealing with, whatever thing I'm trying to, to think my way through, what I have here is a guidepost that encompasses all of what God has said in terms of his commandments to me. What does it mean for me to love God and love people in this situation? What does it look like for me to do that? What does love demand of me in this difficult situation? It's a... Does it give me a crystal clear answer every time right off the bat? No, but it, man, at least I'm looking in the right direction. Amen? Y'all here this morning? What's up? I didn't know, we haven't even gone that deep yet, so I know you're not over your head. It is deep though, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, it's so deep. I, I, I literally, my, my belief is, even on the other side of eternity, we're gonna, we're, part of what's going to fuel our worship of God for eternity is the continual unfolding of how deep this is. I, 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 my conception of, of God himself and then love, because God is love, is that this thing just keeps going on forever. New beauty is going to be revealed to us. New goodness about God. New magnificence about God. New revelations and illuminations about how incredible his love is on forever and ever and ever. Like Some of you, I know, man, when I was younger, I, I thought this way too. Is like, I heard like the, the heaven, we're gonna be, we're gonna be worshiping Jesus forever. Like that, that a lot of what our time is gonna be consumed by for all of eternity is gonna be worshiping Jesus. And I'll be like, ooh, man, I, I like worship, but eternity's a long time. Like, is that gonna get boring at some point? It won't. It won't. I think we're gonna gasp for eternity as the Lord continues to reveal how, just how incredibly beautiful and good and loving he really is. For eternity, man, it's going to be, oh my God, again and again and again. And friends, I hope, I hope those moments are fairly frequent for you here. That's part of what the Christian life should look like. If I can offer you something, if it's been a dry season, if it's been hard for you to have affection stirred for Christ, ask him, Lord, show me. Because that's the thing. Sometimes you'll hear a sermon like I'm preaching right now, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. I, I do I do need to love God first and most with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you could come away and, and get robbed of, of the beauty of what this is really pointing you to because you could come away and do that thing we normally do, right? Like, okay, yeah, yep, I need to love God more, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna love God more. Here I go. And it doesn't work because that's not how it works, friends. How do, you, how do you love someone more? You get closer to them. You know them more. More of who they are is revealed to you. That's, that's where you head. Head towards God himself. The love will come. You can't get closer to him. You can't spend time with him without loving him more. That's just gonna happen. Our love is because of his love, and he is love. You get near him, you're getting some love on you. Amen? Top of the heap. And I hope that all of what we've said thus far, particularly 
The one that does not love does not know God, for God is love. That makes me ask the question, what is love? Verses 9 through 10 begin to give us some shape to that. We should, we should acknowledge, each one of us, our understanding of what love is, the fullness of it. Right? Because if, if you were to sit here and say to me, oh, I, I know what love is. I have it completely and totally figured out. I don't need any more of your sermon, bro. Well, you may not need any more of my sermon, but you, you do need some help. Because God is love and you don't know God totally. You've not seen all of him. You haven't exhausted him. That's a well that goes forever. You can drink and drink and drink and dive and dive and dive and you're never getting to the end. He's, etern- he's the eternal one. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one that exists outside of time. So if I may be so bold, puny mind, no, you haven't. That three-pound piece of meat between your ears has not figured it all out. Trust and believe in that. And I hope that's good news for you. Like, like maybe somebody right now just heard that like, ooh, that, that kind of stung a little bit, but it's a good sting. It's good for you. Because sometimes... You know, the Bible tells us not to weary in well-doing. Sometimes the Christian life, sometimes following Jesus and, and, and then just life in general, it, it, can, it can become this repetitive grind. You start to just kind of feel like, what is this for? What is this about? What am I doing? Right? It can, it can, things can stagnate. We get into ruts and patterns. And ultimately, part of the good news that you're hearing is there is no reason ever to be bored as a believer. There is always more of the love of God to press into. There's more of him to know. And even in eternity, you're going to be doing that. Amen. That's a good word. Verses 9 and 10 start to help us because hopefully, hopefully you're shook a little bit. I'm tr- I, I, that's what I'm trying to do is shake you. Get us to, to think, man, okay, yes, I do, I do need to understand more what is love. How can, how can John say God is love? Not once, but twice. It's not, like it's, it's not like it's a mistranslation. It's not like John, you know, got sleepy when he was writing this, like just kind of got sloppy with language and said, God is love. It's a throwaway. I mean, we don't believe that about the scripture anyways, but the brother said it twice. He said a lot of things in here twice, actually, which again gets my attention. Someone repeats themselves, particularly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's really getting my attention. What does 9 and 10 say? By this, the love of God was manifested in us. What's that mean? By this... You get a manifestation. What does that mean? That it's, it's coming into view in your presence. This the love of God, we get a look at the love of God by this. By what? How do we get a look at the love of God? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Well, maybe you're just starting out as a Christian or maybe you are a seasoned saint. In any case, to, to begin to answer the question, to work on that question of what is love, you look to Christ. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. How? That God sent Jesus so that we might live through him. We get additional shape to that if we flip back one chapter. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love that he, that being Jesus, laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our life for another. Right? I, I mean, I can't, I could have, you know, I would have liked to just read all of 1 John to you, really, because of the, the flow and how, how repetitive some of these things are. It's important. It's, I mean, it's, it's a short book. It's five chapters. But, boy, there's, it's, it's clear that this was, this was important in the mind of this apostle. 
this apostle who walked very closely with the master. For some reason, this was top in the heat for him. So, the love of God manifested in us that we might live through him. In this is love. So, we're going to learn something else about love. Ready? By what? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I assume most of you aren't saying propitiation in your daily life. Basically, that's, in, in that is the idea of, of sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And this, <clears throat> this idea has come under attack. Uh, there are those that misunderstand everything else this says about the love of God to mean that he could have no wrath towards us. But friends, the clear teaching of Scripture is that we, through our sin, we, ha- we have incurred and deserved God's wrath. But, but he loves us, but he loved us, didn't it just say he loved us before? Like, it's not that we loved God, right? This, this, this didn't start with me coming and loving God, it started with him loving me. So how is he, how is he at the same time have this wrath towards me, but also love me? And how does that whole picture show me anything, because again, verses 9 and 10, there's this pivot, this bit, right? 7 and 8, big statements. God is love. If you don't know love, you don't know God. Now here's some, here's some things for you to start to understand what I mean by that. The love of God was manifested in us in this way. God sent Christ. And then verse 9, uh, verse 10, in this is love. You're learning more about love right now by understanding that God loved you first before you ever loved him. And what, why is that important? What does that mean? It's, it, tells us, it tells us much about the character of God, right? Come here, Seth. Help me with something real quick. I didn't tell him about this before. This is an off the cuff. So Seth is my friend. You don't have to say anything at all, all right? You good with that? All right. Seth is my friend. I love Seth. And we're, gonna, we're standing right here in this same space. But let's just, let's just say I decided all of a sudden, turn towards me, I'm going to push you, okay? So don't fall over. So let's say I just decide, you know what? I'm done with Seth. I'm tired of Seth. I'm tired of being in the same safe space with Seth. And I go with one of these. And I'm like, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go over here now. And this is, where, this is the space now I'm going to occupy. I want to live over here. I don't need you. Let's say that happened. That, inter, inter, that exchange happened. Who would you say the burden lays upon if there's going to be any kind of reconciliation here? Who should move first? to get this back right, if it can be got back right? Who should move first, Seth or me? Me? Why? I pushed away, didn't I? I was the one that fractured the relationship, wasn't I? It would be, it would be almost insane for me to think that Seth would be the one to come to me over here. But friends, that is the love of God. Because that's what God did. Each one of us, you can sit down, thank you. Give him a hand for being brave. That's a, that's a picture of sin. We don't often think about it that way, but every time I choose to disobey a God who made me and loves me like I'm being told he loves me here, it's this. I'm done with you. I know better. You can stay there. I'm going over here. My own way. Follow my own wisdom. I'm going to go chase after other loves. That's really, and that's, that's why sin is such a big deal. Right? Some people struggle with the wrath of God. It's like, oh, well, none of us is perfect. Yes, I know, but don't let that trivialize what it is for us to disobey a perfect, holy, creator, loving God. 
That's why the gospel is what it is. That's why Jesus did have to come be a propitiation for our sins because God does love. God is wrathful because he loves. Many people can't bring together the wrath of God and the love of God. Many people have walked away from the faith because they can't understand how those two go together. But it's a blinder that the enemy uses to keep people from seeing the beauty of the thing. I, I love my family very much. I love my kids very much. If they make decisions that are going to lead to pain for them, that, that makes me angry. And particularly, if someone's to come along and try to convince my children to do things that are going to hurt them, I'm, I'm going to be even more upset. Does that mean I don't love my kids? No. And sometimes, in order to, in order to alert them to the reality that they are heading, heading towards destruction in whatever way they've chosen to, I do have to discipline them. I do have to let them see the anger that comes from disobeying somebody that loves you. This is all a totally imperfect analogy because I'm an imperfect man struggling along trying to parent in the, in the, in the model of Christ, right? But I'm just trying to make it real. And I'm trying to dismantle that idea that a God who has wrath cannot be a loving God. And I'm also trying to help you understand that though we are objects of the wrath of God aside from Christ, that when we are in rebellion to God, his wrath rightly sits upon us, does not mean he does not love you. How do you know that? How can you say that? Because in this we know love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Before you ever loved him, he loved you. When you were over here saying, I don't need you, when you were over here doing it on your own, when you were over here, had it all figured out, I don't need your book, I don't need your people, I don't need your commands, I don't need nothing from you, he was loving you. And he was drawing you. And he cared for you. That's, we're still just learning what love is today. Is that all right? Like, well, that seems kind of basic, oh, friends. At one level, yes. But at another, it's the, it's the deepest subject you'll ever open. Amen. This would be maybe my last attempt to convince you that there is, it is okay. There's so many things in the scriptures, so many things the Bible says. All of them inspired by God, profitable for teaching, to rebuke us, to reproof us, to encourage us. We believe that here. But there are some things that rise to the top when it comes to importance. There are some things that, that summarize much of what the rest says. And what I'm trying to do is, first of all, try to convince you of what the summary is, but then also go back and begin to lay out, okay, but what is, what is the details of that summary? What, is it, what does it look like, Okay. Many of you have heard this before, but in, in the context and in, in the flow of thought where we've been today, I want to read this to you. I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm trying to convince you that you caring about what love is from God's perspective is important, and that you walking in love according to God's perspective is important. I'm trying to convince you that Jesus was right. That the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbors yourself. I'm trying to convince you today to go beyond a mental acknowledgement that yes, Jesus said that, and sure, yeah, maybe that's true, but to really dig into what it's going to mean for you to live in light of this truth of truths. Just so you know what I'm doing. 
Is, is love important? Well, Paul said, if I speak with tongues of mankind and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, did you hear that? If I know all mysteries and all knowledge, how cool would that be? Like, would would any of you aspire to know all mysteries and all knowledge? But what if you had that? that? What if that actually was accomplished And to boot, if you had all faith so as to remove mountains, you've got all knowledge of all mysteries, you've got all the faith, you've got enough faith that you're walking up to mountains and say, get out of the way. And they do. If you've got all that going on, friends, but do not have love, what does he say? I am nothing. What? How how would we perceive someone that walked around with that kind of faith and that kind of knowledge. From our perspective, what would, I think, I'll just go first and be honest since you're all being very subdued and quiet today for what I think is the rain maybe. I'll go first and be honest about what would happen for me. I, I roll up on somebody with all wisdom about all mysteries and all, they got all knowledge and enough faith to be moving mountains with it. I'm gonna be impressed with them. Would you be impressed with them? I'm, I'm my fanboy over this guy or gal with these credentials. But Paul said you could have all of that and not have love and be nothing. It would mean nothing. What? I'm seeing something of a hierarchy of importance here. Just submit that to you. And if I give away, okay, maybe you're not a big power smart guy. Maybe you're just a really humble good guy or gal. If I give away all my possessions to charity, if I surrender my body so that I may glory but do not have love, it does me no good. Hold on. So you could give away all that you have. You could be that good of a person and yet somehow still miss this love that is being described? Wow, how is that? You'd almost think that that is the extent of what love is. If I gave away everything I have and just, even myself for the, the good of others. Well, you could, there's a lot of motivations that could drive that. And it may not be, first and foremost, love for God and love for people. You could think, well, maybe that's a way for my name to be remembered. Just, just as one option. Just, just to let, you know, I'm not, I don't want to unpack all of that. There's lots of ways, aside from a strong conviction to walking out this greatest of commands according to Jesus of loving God and loving people. There's a lot of motivations for charity and all of that. It could, it could not be for the glory of God. Let me help you with something. Do you understand that, that, that charity and, and good deeds done not in the name of God and for the ultimately as, as a result of love for God and, and his love for people, ultimately it, it, it falls short. You put the same deed, okay? Let's call, let's call it um, feeding the hungry, okay? We're feeding the hungry. One person's doing that because they love God, they understand his love for them, defined by Christ himself, defined by Christ coming and dying for us, defined by the self-sacrificial love of God shown in the incarnation, life, 
death, resurrection of Christ. That is their motivation. And they, in, in what they're doing, it's motivated by a love for that person and wanting them to be able to see the love of God for them. That's one. The other one is feeding the hungry for any other myriad of possible motivations. Now, us as Christians, how do we think about that? First of all, I will say this. Anybody feeding hungry people, that's a good thing. But motives matter. Because ultimately, if I feed somebody that's hungry, because it makes me feel good to help them, I'm, that's not love. I'm doing, this is, that's a quid pro quo. I'm getting something for that. This is not the self-sacrificial love with no guarantee of payback that agape seems to be. You understand? The most beautiful expression that any good deed could ever come from, the one that's going to have eternal impact are good deeds, good works, motivated not by trying to prove that you're good, not by trying to somehow feel good, but motivated by the fact that God loved me first and so now I am compelled to love others. It changes the whole thing. Paul then, as we came into 9 and 10, I'm trying to give you shape to what love is, right? Because God is love. That's kind of, <laughs> that's hard to grab a hold of, right? Paul continues, still 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to me. I'm going to go slow. This is important. I want you to leave here today thinking about the importance of love and thinking more about how to apply it, how to walk it out. Paul said love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag, right? It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. I'm going to say that one again. It does not seek its own. It is not easily provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. He then goes on to make an incredibly audacious statement that love never fails. Now, experientially, you may push back on that, but it automatically will reveal an anemic view of, of the love that we're talking about. Because the love of God doesn't fail. Because the love of God can be for enemies. You might say, well, I, I, you may think of a broken marriage. You may think of a broken family situation. You may think of a broken friendship. You may think of all these things. You may say, well, I don't know if Paul, Paul was maybe just writing some pretty verses for people to read at weddings there. So he just, he just juiced it a little bit and said, love never fails. No, friends, the love of God never, ever fails. Ever. And we, through the power of the Spirit working in us, because of Christ going first, showing us the way, we can walk and experience that kind of love, both with God and with one another, a love that never fails. Because it's not determined on performance, right? The love of God went first, remember? I pushed Seth. I went away from Seth. I broke the relationship. But in that scenario, Seth went first and said, no, I'm going to keep loving you. How many of you, you know, man, it wasn't just one push. It wasn't just one time you said, I don't need you. I don't need your word. I don't need your people. I don't need anything you got from me. How many of you know it was a bunch of times you did that? And yet God, like the prodigal son's father, waited patiently for the moment 
you would come to your senses and then ran to meet you right where you were. That was me, man. That was me. I know it was me. So thankful. He goes on. He says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part, prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The love of God is... It's, it's, it's not a love based on the fact that he hasn't found out how bad you are yet. Come on. That's going to help somebody if you'll think about it a minute. There's no skeleton coming out of your closet that God's going to go, whoo! Nope, that's it. That's it for me. That's the line. <laughs> so you might as well just let those closets out. Quit hiding them. Let, let those skeletons out because he sees it anyways. And he's already said, I love you. Let's deal with that. Let me help you with that. Let's get rid of that. Because it, it's just hurting you. It is good. Amen. It's helping me. But listen to me. I'm still talking about the supremacy of love. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, King Jesus himself, none of them had any problem with elevating this idea of the love of God what it means, what it calls us to, to the top of the heap. And so I'm kind of going to rest my case on that. If you have any further arguments, see Jesus, Paul, and John whenever you're given an opportunity, and they'll surely sort it out for you better than I have. Okay? Verses 11 through 12, there's a pivot now. I've tried to make a case for the supremacy of God. Now, what does it look like? What does it mean? What, okay, maybe you're buying it. Maybe you're close. Maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, maybe he's on to something. At least, at least from God's perspective, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not sure if you trust what the Bible says and, and what God's perspective is. You know, that, hey, we love you. I'm glad you're here. But at least you're getting what I hope is an accurate representation of what the Bible's really teaching about how God deals with us. There's a whole lot of variant ways to understand these things. And all of them lead to trouble. We need truth. We need grace and truth, right? Verse 11 and 12. So beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You can't, to be loved like this, it comes with it an instant call then to share that love, right? It's, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's to be in a desert dry and parched and, 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 and at the edge of death and to have someone come and, and pour more water on you than you could ever drink for you to, for you to not be willing to turn to the person next to you also parched and, and, and on the edge of death and, and give some of that water away, man, it, that just wouldn't make any sense. This is what the love of God is like, man. It refreshes parched souls. It, brings, it goes farther than that. It brings dead people alive, so I'm so thankful. By this we know, sorry, 11. So we have to love one another. Then it says, no one has seen God at any time. Seems like weird placement for this theological idea, doesn't it? Now you may go to, ex, you, some of you Bible scholars, you might think, well, there's times in the Old Testament, it seemed like the, the people, maybe even in Exodus, once it says the people saw God, but what you have to understand is there's no point in the Old or New Testament where anybody got a glimpse of the fullness of the radiance of God the Father, okay? Because that's, you know, that's nuclear times a bajillion, right? You, you just, you're incinerated. We're talking about 
The only way for us to be able to stand in the radiance of God's light is to be made that very light because of Christ, right? It's the only way we can hang with him. You can't get in, in, in perfection like that without being made perfect yourself. Christ made the way. But it's interesting here that it says no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Friends, I'm just trying to give you the baseline here because you may, you may have bought what I've said so far. Maybe you've, maybe you've been convinced that yes, there is a supremacy to the call to love like God has loved us. That there's, there's, there's an inescapable implication that if I have been loved like this, then I should go love. But, and, and you may hear the words of Christ that I've, I've tried to give you over and over again that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment. But you may say, how do I do that? Right? Because you may, you, you may know that... Um, you guys remember the snowman from uh, Frozen, Olaf? He got pretty close. Honestly, I was, so, I was so proud of whoever wrote this. Like, I'd like to find him. Because when he defined love, he said, love is putting someone else's needs before your own. And that's getting really close. That's getting really close to what we see in Christ coming to die in our place for our sins, which 1 John 3.16 says is how we start to understand what love is. That's really close it's what we saw today in 1 John 4, that if we're going to understand love, we've got to look at the fact that God the Father sent God the Son to us, for us. There's this element in which I'm, I'm going to put the needs of others above my own, but how, if that's, if that's a, a key element of what it means to love, how do I then love God who has no needs? How do I love a God who never needs anything? That's why when they asked for one commandment, they got two. The way you love a God who has no needs is to love the people he loves. And he counts it. What did Jesus say? You, one of you gets a cup of cold water for one of these little children? It's like you did it to who? To me. I want to lo love God better than learn how to love people better. Because it, it's, it, it's the, it, that is what he's looking for. Now, there, are there other ways to express our love to God? I think when we stand, we sing together, Worship him, I think that's an expression of love. When we study his word, when we spend time with him, like you really love someone, you want to spend some time with them, how do you spend time with God in a real way? Well, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's John 1, right? The word became flesh, verse 14, yes? So to, to spend time in the word of God is to literally spend time with Jesus himself, okay? There's that. It's prayer. It's, it's, so yes, there's all of that, thing, things that we normally would probably go to to think, all right, if I'm going to show that I love God, I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to study the word. Those are all real, important, yes, amen. But when it comes to what we're seeing here, what, what, that's what I'm saying. He said no one has seen God at any time. He's trying, to, he's trying to jolt you to this reality. Look, man, you can't hug God. You can't, God, you, you can't hug him. You can't get him anything that he needs. You can't do anything for him. What's he say? No one has seen God at any time if we love one another. God abides in us. And friends, this is, supposed to, this is supposed to be the primary mark that distinguishes the church of Jesus Christ from the rest of a world that is dead and dark and broken. Are you sure? Yeah, go to John 13. It'll be by our love for one another that we stand out. Now, is the fact that we're not willing to partake in sin and disobedience to God and all of that... Yes, that, that also is a distinguishing factor. Absolutely. But oftentimes, in our legalist little foolish minds, we get to the point where we think that our 
abstaining from certain things is the primary mark that we belong to God. We start to peacock a little bit. When what is supposed to be the primary distinguishing mark for the people of God is going low. Is getting down in the mud to serve those that are doing those types of sins. Instead of riding around on high horses around them and pointing. Isn't it interesting? Jesus Jesus taught us this. We probably just didn't catch it. Remember when he washed the disciples' feet? And what would, you, what would you expect a king, a master to do? He washes everyone's feet. You'd think, now it's time for someone to wash his feet. What's he say? Go and do this for each other. You haven't seen God. And God doesn't need anything from you. But you want to love God? The primary way is to love people. And that's why loving God and loving people, that's why Jesus it seems like he gives two commands, but it's really one. You cannot pull those apart. It's, it's in, in, in one essence, it's the same thing. To love God and to love people. You got me? I know that's, that's kind of a lot. If you want to talk more about it, I, uh, you know, I'll be around afterwards. Because that's deep. Deep, deep, deep. Okay. Ooh, I said I was trying not to go long. All right, I'm going to wrap this up. We're moving. We're making it. At one level, I'm only talking to you about like the most important things I possibly can think of to talk to you about. So ultimately, like, you know, I'm acting like I care about the time, not a whole lot really, but it's, probably, it's nice to at least pretend, you know, like, no, we, we're moving along. So by this, we know that we abide in him. How? And that he is in us because he has given us his spirit. It's an incredible fulfillment of the promise, right? It was foreshadowed all along, God tabernacling with his people in the, in the desert, that was him being there, Jesus, Jesus coming and walking amongst us. It was all, it was all leading up to the, the very best, the, the, the end goal, which was not just God with us here on earth, but God in us by his spirit. No longer do we need a tabernacle. We don't need a temple. God doesn't stay here in this building. This space is not sacred. What makes this space anything is that a bunch of people who God lives in comes together in it and makes much of him. I mean, I'm thankful that this roof's keeping the rain off of us today, but there, this, is, this isn't holy ground other than the fact that a bunch of people made holy by the grace of God are here. And so he's here. Amen. Verse 14, we've seen and testify and the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It all comes down to what we believe about Jesus. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, friends. He said it again. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. I just want to point out to you quickly, I have more to say about this, but I'm, I'm, going, to leave, I'm going to leave some of it alone. I just want to call your attention to this. Verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. I find it so very interesting that he does not say we have come to know, believe, and feel the love of God for us. Or he didn't just say we have come to feel the love of God for us. Now, I am not trying in any way to say that a tangible feeling of the love of God is a bad thing. It's a very good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Anybody in here, you can say with 100% honesty that you have tangibly 
felt the love of God for you at some time in your life? My hand's going up because I'm saying, yes, absolutely I have, and I'm so thankful for that. But there's also times where I have not tangibly felt the love of God for me. And that's when I have to know. I have to know what is true. And I have to believe what is true by faith. Because sometimes my feelings lie to me. Sometimes your feelings are going to have you wondering, does God love me? Is this true? And that's when we have to know what we know about Jesus. We have to come back to the fact that I believe by faith, and I believe because it's a verifiable historical fact, that Jesus of Nazareth, born in a podunk little town with no power, no prestige, rose to a level of prominence that that all the leaders felt like they had to kill him because they were threatened by him. And that he told them, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll rise it again. Of course, they didn't know what he was talking about. But that he rose from the grave, proving that he was God in the flesh, come to live and to die in our place and to rise so that we could be saved. How do I know if God loves me, friends? I mean, each... I would encourage you, you know, keep journals, man. We're forgetful people. We're so dense sometimes. Each of us can, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you can think back through your life and you should, and we should hold to these as anchors. The next time the enemy tries to come sell us some stupid line that that God doesn't love us, all the times he's been faithful, all the times he's come through, all the times he's shown in very specific ways in each of your lives that he loves you, those things count, those things matter. But ultimately, even if you're reeling, even if you are being washed over by waves of darkness and despair, and you cannot, for the life of you, reach for those anchor points, those points of light from your own life, reach all the way back to this. How do we know God loves us? Because of Christ. If all the other anchors fail... That one holds. Amen. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Friends, the heart of the gospel is really summarized in this verse. There are many Many, many, many. Who their, their primary relation to God is, is, is one of fear. It's a fear of judgment. And that comes a, a, a several different ways. Sometimes it comes from people who claim to represent God presenting him that way, primarily. God is a judge, and he has the right to judge. But he's also a good father. He's also represented to us in Christ who came to die in our place. And so God will judge, does judge. None of that's a a problem if you understand how this judgment thing is going to work. Christ, the scripture says, is our advocate. When we get to the eternal courtroom, we've got a lawyer, and his name is Jesus, and he's never lost a case. You might might be sitting there thinking about your life going, well, mine's going to be rough. Mine will be. God, I hope that's a closed courtroom and all you don't get to stand there uh, (laughs) and see the depth of my stupidity at certain times. But uh, I praise God that really every case is going to be short because it's just a matter of Jesus showing the wounds that he endured 
the punishment he took, so it's already been paid. And so, yeah, at one level I'm guilty, but I'm made innocent because he loves me and because he decided to take the punishment I should have got. It doesn't even seem right. And yet it's, it's, it's my hope. It's your hope, friend. It's the only hope we got. Stand before a perfect holy judge. And, and there's a freedom from fear. There's a freedom from living your life trying to do enough to feel confident on the day of judgment. To realize that your confidence is going to come from Christ alone and then go out into the world and walk in love as a result of how much you've been loved. Not to try to hopefully get loved one day. You want to talk about what real freedom is for a human being? That's it right there. It's the only way you're going to get it. We love because he first loved us. I said that five verses ago. Did you guys forget already? You know, John's just hitting us with this. Don't get confused. Don't forget. We love because he first loved. He's the source. He gets to define it. I want to know what he's talking about. I'm going to him. I'm going to his word. I'm going to the cross. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. All I'm going to say about that, friends, is don't be a liar. Don't, don't run around here saying you love God, but be harboring bitterness and hate towards anybody. And look, I know in today's age, for me to say that, and not give a bunch of caveats is dangerous. Look, I understand there are very, very difficult situations, abuse, things of that nature, that that, that makes what it looks like to love complicated to figure out. But I, I, listened, I listened to a Taliban, or I'm sorry, an Afghanistan pastor this year talk about what it's like for him to pray for the Taliban who is persecuting and killing every single Christian they can find in Afghanistan. Just because I'm loving somebody, just because I, I am able to maintain a desire for their greatest good, doesn't mean, so what is that, does it, for the persecuted church in Afghanistan, what does it mean for them to love? Does that mean they have to, they have to go up and put their head underneath the boots of the Taliban soldiers and just let them do whatever they want to do? No, it doesn't. Because, because those people are trying to, the Taliban is trying to get them to disobey Jesus by not gathering, by not coming together uh, weekly to worship him, by not uh, singing songs and studying the word and, and, and doing all that it is that God's called us to do as his people. So they can't listen to the Taliban. They got to listen to Jesus. But that doesn't mean they're going to hate the Taliban. That doesn't mean they're going to wish for the worst for them. Somehow, even though these people are being drugged out of their homes and killed in the streets. And, and, and I'm, look, I want to say this. This pastor was really honest. He said, it's really hard. It's really hard for me to pray for them. But I know that's what's right. And friends, I want you to leave here at least knowing what's right. I know it's not easy. I know each one of us is going to need God's help to get anywhere near. Loving even the nice people around us in a genuine way. But talk about the mean people. So I hope you leave here today convinced of the supremacy of God, convinced that for the rest of your life you should be digging into what it means to love God and love people. And I hope you're leaving here with a deep understanding of your need for God in case you forgot because you're not gonna get anywhere near doing any of this without 
his help. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. I thank you for the truth that you are love. Lord, I know I've spent two decades thinking about it, praying about it, diving deep into it, swimming in that water, and I know I've stayed completely on the surface. I know how deep that goes. And I just pray that each of us, Lord, that we would not be those that are, that are fickle or easily distracted. Lord, I, I pray that for each person here, they would, they would feel confident in settling, that understanding your love for them and what the proper response is, that, that we would understand, Lord, that because you love us, it means something. And it has implications that for us to think about this, that we're never gonna wear it out, that continuing to, to study, to pray, to ask for you to bring us further illumination to the meaning, but then also, Lord, it's, we, don't, we don't just need to know more what that means that God is love. We just don't, don't need more information and knowledge, Lord. We need power, we need grace and strength to go out and walk in light of the fact that you loved us first and what that means. Lord, we can't do it without you. We need you desperately, we always have but thank you for reminding us of it yet again today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.